The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it has been a jam-packed week. I mean, just so much is going on. A lot of it is going on in New York at the United Nations, but we're also going to touch on uh, events that are in Beijing. We've got a lot of sound that I want to get through today. I've got sound bites that I really can't wait for you to riff off of and also for our guest today. Uh, let's first start with two major Chinese initiatives that really just took center stage this week. At least, actually, let me rephrase that. They took center stage in some quarters of the world. In other parts of the world, they had no idea that this was going on. Let's first talk about the Global Development Initiative. Uh, the Chinese held an event on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly in New York, and it was a Big deal. 60 countries attended, 10 international organizations and UN entities, 40 foreign ministers. Now, a big part of the messaging about this global development initiative, and it's also known as GDI, is that it aims to bolster the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which are known commonly as SDGs. And for that reason, it seems to have the very enthusiastic backing of the United Nations itself, including Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez. And when you listen to this exchange, Kobus, I want to get your take on this, that was featured on Chinese state television with Gutierrez, who was an interviewer from, I think it was CGTN, you'll hear just how closely aligned he is with the GDI's objectives. A year ago, the Chinese President Xi Jinping uh, proposed Global uh, Development Initiative here in uh, Anga 76 uh, to promote people's well-being. How do you think this uh, Global Development Initiative could help achieve the SDGs? It was exactly uh, launched to support the implementation of the SDGs. And uh, uh, obviously, uh, any uh, initiative aiming at uh, overcoming that gap that exists uh, is extremely welcome. There will be, uh, by the way, during this week, uh, a, a meeting of the group of friends of uh, the initiative. I will send a message uh, uh, and uh, we will be fully represented. And uh, uh, this initiative and others that other countries might be able to put on the table will be very much welcome because we need to rescue the Sustainable Development Goals. And that is exactly the objective of the Global Development Initiative. And you saw that from UN officials up and down the line who were just touting the benefits of the GDI and this event. Now, in Western capitals and in Western media, people aren't quite as excited about the GDI. Uh, the Economist this week wrote a headline or story headlined, China's Global Development Initiative is not as innocent as it sounds. Western countries are wary of the plan and they should be. So, Kobus, that was very interesting. Then, separately, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, who was hosting the GDI event in New York, 
He then turned around and also did a virtual hosting of another important Chinese organization or organized meeting that took place this week. Uh, this one was in Beijing for the second Middle East Security Forum. And this was a showcase for another major Chinese initiative known as the Global Security Initiative, or GSI. So we have GDI and we have GSI. Just like the GDI, the GSI is also relatively new. It was unveiled by Xi Jinping back in April at the Boao Forum, and China is promoting it, and this is, their, this is the way they say it, these are their words, as a, quote, new security concept. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi was a keynote speaker at the event in Beijing this week, and what you'll hear in his opening remarks is that even though the Chinese are presenting this as some kind of new alternative security architecture for the Middle East, again, GSI is not only for the Middle East, it's a worldwide thing, but in this particular context, it's focused on the Middle East. A lot of the themes that he raised are really the same as what we've heard from Chinese complaints about U.S. hegemony that really date back for years. Let's take a listen to Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi through an interpreter. Countries in the Middle East are connected, and the major issues there are linked together. So these should be addressed systematically and with an overall point of view. No country should aim for its own safety unilaterally. Meanwhile, we don't believe there is a power vacuum in the region. The people in the Middle East make their own destiny. We believe the course for the region should be charted by the countries in the Middle East themselves. The new security architecture should go by UN charters and principles. And China also stands by resolving issues through dialogue. We support the establishment of the Gulf Security Dialogue Platform. So nothing in that was new. Kobus, we heard again the, you know, like, like, the, like they say on TikTok, tell me you're talking about the United States without actually telling me you're talking about the United States. Well, that's it. That is the code that they have. There is no power vacuum. They don't like unilateralism. Another speaker came up saying they don't like sanctions. So this is the laundry list of things they don't like. You have been thinking a lot lately about both the GDI and the GSI. Here they were this week, front and center. Give us your take on both of these events. I found both of these events really interesting. It was for the on the GDI one, I was really struck by A, how much attention it got in the global south and how little attention it got in the global north. You know, it was in you. There was no attention in the global north. No attention, almost none, no attention at all. It was, you know, it was in New York, like blocks away from the New York Times, you know, kind of, but, but no one showed, you know, so, so it, 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 that was quite interesting, particularly because, because, you know, for me, it, it kind of, it showed two things. One is that, that China is increasingly, you know, kind of focusing on development as a form of coalition building across the global south. And in the process is changing very established narratives of what development means and, and how you achieve it. And, you know, I, I think to a certain extent with, with getting a quite a kind of enthusiastic, you know, kind of audience in the global south around those issues. In the second place, what it also showed is that the, the Chinese are really focusing on the UN um, and really kind of working closely with the UN and like and and like putting the UN at the center of a lot of 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 their kind of their kind of Beijing centric kind of you know kind of announcements or, or pronouncements, and it seems like this kind of you know it seems like what we're seeing is is a kind of a bigger trend of of 
China kind of folding some of its work into the work of the UN, but at the same time also kind of building building kind of very significant kind of like bases of, of influence within the UN. And the way that that then kind of rolls out around issues of global development and issues of global security is really interesting. And the fact that that's, it's, it's being completely ignored in, in, in places like Washington um, is also revealing. Well, they do like the UN, and one of the reasons, and we heard this in our discussion a couple of years ago with Professor Courtney Fung, uh, who talked about how the Chinese like to push things into the UN because it dilutes American power. It, it, it makes it more difficult for the United States to exert itself because it has to go through this big, complex process, and we heard a lot about that, and the UN seems to be reciprocating with all sorts of love, and you see this up and down their Twitter channels, uh, so very, very interesting. Let's shift our focus now to African affairs, and for that, we are so thrilled to have back on the show again Sanusha Naidu, who is a senior research fellow at the Institute for Global Dialogue in South Africa, and she joins us on the line again today from oh-so-beautiful Cape Town. Great to have you back on the show, Sanusha. Thanks so much for your time. It's lovely being back on the show, Eric and Quibus. Always a pleasure. I always enjoy my time engaging with both of you. I have a fantastic time all the time. Well, we uh, we hope that the good times will continue. I've got a lot to throw at you to get your take. Let's stay in New York at the United Nations General Assembly. And most African leaders, if not all, were in town for this big shindig. Uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping, he didn't go. Uh, he was in Central Asia last week, but I think he's still a little bit shy about going out in, onto the stage. And uh, we'll probably see him next in Bali at the G20 summit. But U.S. President Joe Biden, he was there and he addressed the assembly on Wednesday. Sunusha, this is where I want to get your take. He directed a part of his speech to developing countries, including those in Africa, when he said again that the United States is not engaged in a new Cold War with China, and he doesn't want countries to have to pick sides. Let me be direct about the competition between the United States and China. As we manage shifting geopolitical trends, the United States will conduct itself as a reasonable leader. We do not seek conflict. We do not seek a Cold War. We do not ask any nation to choose between the United States or any other partner. But the United States will be unabashed in promoting our vision of a free, open, secure, and prosperous world and what we have to offer communities of nations. Now, a key pillar of U.S. foreign policy is preservation of what they call the rules-based order. And that's something you hear from American officials all the time and the institutions that bolster that system. So it was interesting when Senegal's President Macky Sall, who was also the chairperson of the African Union, said in his speech to the UN General Assembly that the current system isn't working too well for many developing countries and that he and they want something different. Nearly 80 years after the birth of the United Nations system and the Bretton Woods institutions, it is time for a fairer, more inclusive global governance that is more adapted to the realities of our time. It is time to overcome the reticence and to deconstruct the narratives that persist in confining Africa to the margins of decision-making circles. Sunusha Macky Sall is not alone in saying this, and it seems to me that 
this is the kind of opening that the Chinese seem to be taking advantage of and something like the GDI is playing into. What's your take? Give us your thoughts on on Biden, the GDI, and Macky Sall. You know, as you were mentioning the GDI and the GSI, it, it's very easy to now kind of see what the rules-based system is all about. And I think what Macky Sall made reference to in his speech at the UN General Assembly was that this, the architecture of this rules-based system, the normative value, this, the, the principles, uh, rules, the legality, the regime itself, has actually been, the architecture has been very specific in terms of the, the world after 1945. Now the world has shifted. And so that normative value that you see that Biden is referring to, that kind of says, you know, we're not, we don't want you to take sides if we talk about a community of nations. I think invariably what we are beginning to see is that that system is no longer representative. And I think this is where the Chinese have been very, very smart. They've been very proactive and they've utilized what has been the mainframe of the UN system. The UN system is about the UN Charter. It is about the, the states that make up the UN system and the global order that we see today. And that system has evolved. And it's no longer just about the world of, of, of 1945 and thereafter and the Bretton Woods institutions and how they play their role. But it's really about that inclusiveness and that normative value is really where Africa wants to be seen as part of that whole mainstream of this. So I think what you're beginning to see is that if the attention on the GSI and especially the GDI has been about the Global South attending and the UN mainstreaming and the UN Secretary General talking about uh, the time to rescue the SDGs, I think it's also about the time in which there needs to be a much more, a broader set of, of actors that now underpin the normative principles and values of the, of the international system. And I think that's what Makisal is referring to. And this is where I think the African bloc in the United Nations General Assembly has now decided that this is what we want. We want a greater agency and a greater voice. So they want that, Cobus, and they were asking in many of the speeches from African leaders, you heard this over and over again, about more representation on the Security Council, more representation at the G20. But the nature of the human psyche is that we don't give up power willingly. That's just not the way that things work. What leverage do countries like Senegal and African countries who, again, are at the, the base of the pyramid in terms of development, what kind of leverage do they have over the wealthy countries in terms of getting a seat at the table? Well, you know, kind of the fact that they have so little leverage is part of the systemic problem that we're facing. You know, the, the UN is in a lot of ways one of the only spaces for, for the global south to have any kind of say on, on the running of international affairs. And the sidelining and weakening of the UN, you know, kind of over the, that we've seen, you know, kind of in the past has also weakened their voice. So I, I think, I think that is, it's, it, that, that is a big problem. You know, it's particularly a big problem in, for, for cross-cutting issues like um, like climate change and we've seen the impact of a lack of global governance systems you know and during the COVID crisis as well I think China has been quite smart in the specific issues they're focusing on through the GDI they're really looking at climate at agricultural stuff and at connectivity slash tech like a lot of a lot of kind of like smart borders smart customs you know kind of like the, those those kind of issues all issues i think that 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 don't get a lot of particularly around agriculture for example that don't actually get a lot of attention you know in 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 places like washington and particularly now when everyone is fixated on the ukraine crisis so you know so so it is this kind of interesting kind of 
creation of of these kind of spaces of you know you know where where, where issues that the global south are really obsessed about like agriculture for example and climate are addressed or can be discussed in a kind of a china shaped space you know so you know so, so they, i think china is kind of smartly kind of taking advantage of the lack of attention to a lot of these issues coming from from the us but sanusha you know on twitter today i said that i was surprised that nobody in new york you know the, the center of american media and obviously where most european publications like the guardian and the bbc and others have fully staffed bureaus bothered to send a single reporter over to the new york location or venue i don't know if it was at the un or it was at the the chinese consulate where 40 foreign ministers we're not talking about ambassadors or you know some kind of scholars or analysts or whatever these were foreign ministers 40 of them including from countries like the Saudis, the Qataris, a number of African countries, Ethiopia, and nobody paid attention to it. Nobody paid attention to it. Does that surprise you? Because people said, Eric, why are you surprised? They've been neglecting the global South now, but it's just like they're obsessed with China. And yet when China's on their doorstep, you know, chipping away at, at the influence of the institutions that they so value, they're not paying attention. I think I'm, I'm not surprised and I'm surprised at the same time. Because as you rightly point out, you know, the, the idea that China is the constant need to, to, to push back against. So as you rightly pointed out, the Economist uh, report about the GDI saying that, it, you know, don't, don't, don't give it too much of air, don't give it too much of ventilation, because it's, it comes with all kinds of, um, of disclaimers and disruptors that you've got to be careful about. And I think the, 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 the narrative that is now coming out of mainstream media in the developed North uh, around whether or not we give ventilation to the Chinese when they have this event, where other countries that are basically from the global south or in the kind of mainstream of the Middle East in Africa and elsewhere, which are sending their most important policymakers to the event, etc., also tells you a story about the fact that if we don't report on it, if we don't give it coverage, then it's not important. And therefore, our importance in terms of the footprint we have in the media space as the fourth state, um, in terms of the coverage, in terms of the issues and the topics that we want to cover is, if we don't give China that, that airtime, then of course, Nobody else will care about that. And I think that's where we're beginning to see the slippage that's coming out from the West in terms of its coverage of media, the coverage of issues, the coverage of Africa in these bureaus as well, uh, constantly around whether it has to be a pushback against China or whether or not it is about Anthony Blinken's visit to uh, to sub-Saharan Africa, unveiling the sub-Saharan uh, Africa strategy for uh, of of the U.S. and I think that again tells you that you know they 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 they're beginning to realize or they're beginning to lose that leverage in terms of the kinds of reporting that they should be covering because if you take the attitude that they are that that not covering the event in New York or in Beijing or wherever is basically us now saying that it's it, it's not an important event it's not a strategic event we don't want to give it any kind of ventilation or any kind of airtime and therefore hence we don't have to worry about it because it's just China doing what China feels that it's doing is right then you're actually missing a very important strategic ambit in the shifting of the of the landscape in terms of the global governance agenda but also in terms of the relationship that China is now beginning to push forward in terms of the space that Quibus referred to, and that is bringing that nexus between the development and the security uh, dynamics together. 
Well, let's move on to the question of debt, because that was also another key issue at both the UN General Assembly this week, but also uh, in, in the global discourse. So very big news that happened this week out of Ecuador, where the Chinese rescheduled $4.4 billion of debt. One of the most interesting parts of this deal, and it's so important, again, this is why we're, we're so happy that we're, we're looking across the, bro- the broader global south right now, is because you can see what they're doing in one country and then maybe consider if they're going to apply it to another country. So one of the interesting things that, that they did in Ecuador as part of the debt restructuring deal is they backed off the oil for debt deals. So they're giving the Ecuadorians now more flexibility to sell oil at market rates. A lot of times these resource for infrastructure deals tied to oil were had prices of oil set much, much lower. So these countries weren't able to A, pay off their Chinese debts and B, able to profit more. So CNPC, the China National Petroleum Corporation, now gave Ecuador some more room to move. You can probably see something like this be applied to Angola and potentially Venezuela and other oil-rich countries as well. Back in the UN General Assembly... Uh, Biden, let's go back to the Biden speech. Um, This is the last time I'm going to talk about Biden, and we'll move on from the Americans after this. But it was interesting, and it got a lot of attention. Even though he didn't reference China specifically by name, just like how the Chinese don't reference the Americans by name, you could tell who he was talking about when the issue of debt came up. And as Russia's war rolls, riles the global economy, we're also calling on major global creditors, including the non-Paris club countries, to transparently negotiate debt forgiveness for lower-income countries, to forestall broader economic and political crisis around the world. Instead of infrastructure projects that generate huge and large debt without delivering on the promised advantages, let's meet the enormous infrastructure needs around the world with transparent investments, high-standard projects that protect the rights of workers and the environment, key to the needs of the communities they serve, not to the contributor. That's why the United States, together with fellow G7 partners, launched a Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment. We intend to collectively mobilize $600 billion in investment through this partnership by 2027. Dozens of projects are already underway. Industrial-scale vaccine manufacturing in Senegal, transformative solar projects in Angola, first-of-its-kind small modular nuclear power plant in Romania. These are investments that are going to deliver returns, not just for those countries, but for everyone. So that non-Paris club countries that he's referring to, of course, he's not talking about Turkey. He's talking about China. And the question of the PGII that he referenced, well, you know, I was looking through his speech in the last year in the 66th World Unit UN General Assembly, and he was talking about Build Back Better World. Well, guess what happened to Build Back Better World? Nothing. So yes, PGII has a few projects that are underway. I think some of those are actually rollovers from B3W that got started. But let's just be clear here, PGII is not off to a fantastic start. But let's move on and stay on the, the question of debt here. That same theme came up during Nigerian President Muhammadu Bahari's Uh, his address, which he devoted a portion of his speech before the assembly to the issue of debt, and he called on behalf of developing countries for some badly needed relief. The multifaceted challenges facing most developing countries have placed a debilitating chokehold on their fiscal space. 
these equally calls for the need to address the burden of unsustainable external debt by a global commitment to the expansion and extension of the debt service suspension initiative to countries facing fiscal and liquidity challenges as well as outright cancellation for countries facing the most severe challenges. Kobus, debt cancellation by either China or private creditors just is not in the cards. And frankly, we haven't seen anything from the presumably enlightened Paris Club lenders that Joe Biden's talking about either. I mean, it really feels like Buhari is just speaking into the wind on this one. What's your take on these debt themes that came up? Well, you know, one of the interesting kind of changes now is that the Chinese foreign ministry is increasingly, you know, kind of lobbing this ball right back to Washington, you know, in, in the sense that the the standard talking point, and that was that was repeated again today or like yesterday by Wang Wenbing, um, the, the one spokesperson, was essentially that, well, you know, kind of China, Chinese debt is much smaller than, than, than Western private sector debt, which is true in, in many of these cases. And also the Chinese have worked more with the G20 to, to do something about it than, than the, the Western private sector, which is also true because the, the G20's DSSI didn't cover private sector debt. Um, and you know, so so they're increasingly kind of focusing focusing the the attention on the unwillingness um, of, particularly I think the US and the UK, in, to take on their kind of their international financial sectors that are that are based you know, in London and New York in all you know kind of in order to 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 work out any kind of like way to to deal with with bond debt and other kind of private sector debt you know and and that that role in 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 this kind of global south debt crisis in countries like Zambia and Sri Lanka and you know kind of that doesn't necessarily change anything it is it is interesting to see the talking point shifting but but the thing is you know is, is that it's it, it is it does remain it, it, startling is the wrong word but it does remain you know kind of impressive to see Western leader after Western leader manage to kind of completely overlook the, the role of Western private sector debt in all of this all of this problem as if it just doesn't exist you know as if the only problem is bilateral Chinese debt it's like it's, it's so funny yeah but multilateral too I mean again I mean for all the grand talk about this the IMF the World Bank the multilaterals haven't canceled any debt yet either I mean so again this is kind of weird to me Sanusha, you follow debt. You've been following this issue for 20 years. Where are we today? I mean, you look at the news today out of Ghana was that they are staring into the abyss of a potential default. The Zambian debt restructuring process now has hit a snag because of the private creditors who said, "Uh uh-uh, we don't like what we're seeing. So no one's budging here. And yet African countries continue to swirl the toilet bowl. Absolutely. And I think the problem is that the rhetoric is just what it is. It's about, oh, we need to talk about the debt. We need to restructure. You need to, everybody needs to be on the same page. But like you and and, and Kobus have mentioned, you know, nobody's willing to give up that power of what the debt uh, and payment of, 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 of that debt uh, is to them. And so whilst you hold that debt over these uh, over African countries, the leverage also increases, but it also means that you put these com- economies into a very difficult predicament. I mean, 
the amount of debt service that takes place that takes money away from these economies just can't is not sustainable and more importantly i think what's what 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 i've seen over the last 20 years is that there seems to be less of a a, a level of flexibility and i think when covid hit covid kind of shifted the balance as well and now we're going back to 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 pre covid times but in a much more intense and deeper way that there's no maneuverability there's no level of flexibility you've got to stick to the plan the market is deciding the private sector creditors don't want to actually give up on on on, on how much money they're being owed and i think one of the things i want to add to the mix here uh, eric is the question about there's the debt question but the other question that is also equally debilitating for african countries is the amount of money that leaves the the continent in illicit financial flows that end up in the very uh, markets in in whether you want to call it in in in, in offshore accounts in 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 um, in in banks overseas that also debilitate the economy in africa and that money i think is something that uh if you don't want to deal with the debt issue and you feel that african countries need to pay their do uh, their debt according to the mechanics of how debt repayment needs to take place then that's one question the other question is what about the money that leaves the continent illicitly why don't you actually put the checks and balances there in terms of what biden was talking about in the context of transparency and the question of how you want to deal with transparency of financial flows yeah no no absolutely sunisha i completely agree and i mean and, and so we're talking about illicit financial flows which you know kind of i think when 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 a lot of people you know hear that they assume it's corruption which obviously is, is is one is one big part of it, but a lot of it is also to do with with foreign companies not paying the taxes that they're supposed to be paying, and you know so that kind of tax avoidance is is a big problem. But then beyond that, there's also the issue of you know the kind of business friendly reforms that that are that are imposed through debt debt um, reconstruction pro- or debt restructuring processes, as we've seen in the earlier IMF process in Zambia, um, you know which we, as as we've discussed in earlier podcasts, like the you know the the Zambia Zambia was such a was Zambia's economy is, is very very dependent on copper, but the percentage of its of its taxes paid by copper extractors really plunged kind of after the after the previous kind of debt restructuring process, which included these kind of business quote unquote business friendly reforms kind of, um, demanded by the IMF, which essentially turned you know kind of capped the amount of taxes paid by foreign companies no matter what the what the the copper price international copper price was um and in the process essentially hollowed out zambia's complete like entire tax base you know so it's not only the situation of of illegally avoiding taxes but it's actually the 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 process of the the kind of international financial system colluding to to have these companies not pay taxes to begin with you know in 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 some cases and and you know so so it, it really it really kind of like makes you wonder like how these countries are supposed to kind of get back on their feet. Yeah, I mean, I completely feel that there's the G20 that's coming up later this year, and that's one of the key issues I think when you think about the financial system and how the financial governance architecture had to be reformed and deal with those reforms in terms of creating a more viable set of 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 conditions in the global economy and i think this is where the g20 as well i think we uh, i'm 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 steering away from this week's uh, general assembly but i think it it it, dov- it dovetails very importantly with the g20 and the upcoming meeting because this is where the question of the debt will also be ventilated further but it's a question of the financial markets and of course the responsibility of 
of of of of what the uh, the global tax regime is on these on these questions of how that creates a further burden uh, on on economies in Africa, particularly those economies that are trying to now get out of the the impact of COVID, that are dependent on global commodities. The tax breaks don't make it any more easier for them. But it's also the question in terms of now raising capital in in equity markets that much more expensive. So it's a kind of a, a triple double, triple whammy for, 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 for a country like Ghana, dependent on a resource, Angola, dependent on a resource. How do they actually take out the, 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 the money in terms of as these commodity prices ebb and flow? And I think there has to be some kind of, of going back to what the global governance architecture was on the financial system itself. It's interesting that you mentioned the G20. It's an issue that's come up a number of times this week at the UN and elsewhere, and, and specifically the DSSI. And I have no faith whatsoever that this fall's G20 summit is going to do anything on debt, because if they haven't done anything in the past two years, when they had a grace period, and this grace period was the fact that Xi Jinping wasn't at any of the meetings, <laughs> Okay, he's going to be back at this meeting in the fall. He's going to be there alongside Vladimir Putin, the Japanese prime minister, the Australian prime minister, the Europeans, and Biden. Okay, and one has to think that if debt didn't rise to a priority in the past two years when it wasn't as contentious, there is no way that these issues are going to get any oxygen in the fall when it's just going to be a spitting match over Ukraine, over grain, over U.S.-Russia, U.S.-China, and so many other great power issues. Do you have any optimism? Or maybe just, I don't want to impart my skepticism on you, but do you think that there's going to be room at this discussion to have a conversation about Global South issues related to debt when it's going to be a much more contentious conversation among the great powers? I'm not holding my breath on that one, Eric, because I think, again, you know, the G20 has gone through its processes. I mean, the formulation of the G20 was about the financial architecture and including the questions around dealing with the equity and the liquidity in the market and how to deal with those questions. And I think the fact of the matter is that there's going to be overwhelming attention paid to the more geoeconomic tensions around Russia, the impact on the oil, the impact on the food uh, security questions, challenges around the gas, the electricity issues that that uh, the coming winter in Europe and the US may face, particularly Europe, uh, the cost of inflation in, in Europe, etc. All of these are very important questions, by, by uh, and don't get me wrong, I don't think that we should disregard them. But the challenge is, is going to be about, you know, who's affected and why they're affected and how they need to deal with that in terms of their immediate direct consequences. And I think when it comes to the question of the debt and the fact that African countries and other countries in the global south have had experienced this onerous burden on their economy. And and, uh, Kovus mentioned Sri Lanka. And Sri Lanka is a very scary example for me in the sense that most of us in, in, in terms of where we are in, 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 in Africa and particularly where economies are struggling, uh, Sri Lanka is a real example of what can happen. And I think this is where the G20 
again, the challenge of the politics of power, the politics of nations, and more importantly, who actually wants to get their voice heard at the G20 and how they're going to uh, utilize that space and leverage that space. I'll be very interested to see how Putin and, and, the, rela- and, and, and the reaction to Putin at the G20 is going to uh, emerge and how they're going to, you know, are we going to see that kind of, 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 of very aggressive approach in terms of the kinds of speeches that are made? Are we going to see a tempered approach? But again, it's all going to be overwhelmed and overshadowed by this Ukraine-Russia conflict and the fallout that this is having for the global economy. And it's probably going to have a lot to do with the status of the war at that moment. So if the the troop mobilization that, that Putin has just called in, if that starts to show results, then Putin will come in more confident. But if he's you know, struggling as the way he appears he is now, he may not be quite as contentious. We'll we'll wait to see that. Uh, you mentioned Sri Lanka. Just two quick updates on Sri Lanka. Number one, uh, a little factoid came out this week that India just surpassed China as in terms of creditors to, to Sri Lanka. So India has been providing quite a bit of aid in 2022, and they've just surpassed the amount of, uh, of debt that uh, is owed to them compared to the Chinese. Also, there was a lot of note taking into account the fact that the Chinese are moving on debt issues in Zambia, in Ethiopia, and Ecuador, but haven't done anything in both Pakistan and in Sri Lanka. And so people are starting to watch that. Why aren't they moving on those debt issues, given the severity of the situation, Sanusha, as you pointed out? I want to go back very quickly, Kobus, to uh, what you talked about earlier and how the United States has this habit of isolating China from other creditors and, and really singling them out for a lot of attention. Uh, earlier this week, uh, a spat developed, yet another one between the U.S. and China, when Brett Neiman, who's a senior advisor to U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, he delivered an hour-long scripted address this week at the Peterson Institute in Washington that got a lot of people's attention it, it, You know, all throughout the financial media, Bloomberg, Financial Times, Reuters, they all covered this, when he called out the Chinese and, and, and the way that they are behaving as a creditor for not doing enough to help highly indebted poor countries to restructure their obligations. I, I apologize. The audio isn't great on this. This is from the Peterson Institute, so it's the best that we could do. But it's still very important that you hear what he said. One important change in the creditor landscape stems from how China restructures its bilateral debts. Chinese policy and commercial banks typically rely on limited cash flow treatments and do not write down large losses. Researchers have found that the majority of Chinese debt relief deals have come with significant delays and have not reduced the borrower country's nominal debt burden. Instead, the deals involve lengthening maturities or grace periods, and in fewer cases, interest rate reductions or new financing. Only four cases since 2000 have reportedly involved haircuts on Chinese official debt. And in some cases, such as the Republic of Congo in 2018, debt restructurings have even increased the net present value of China's loans. As a result, the restructurings typically do not resolve the debt overhang and can stoke uncertainty about the need for repeated reschedulings in the future. So, Kobus, everything that he said, based on what you and I have studied, the information from the China-Africa Research Initiative, from aid data, from any number of universities that have studied this, He's absolutely right. There's nothing wrong with what he said. I guess it's in some ways singling that out without the broader context. But you wrote this week in our coverage that this also sparked a rather pissed off reaction from 
Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman Wang Wenbing. Talk to us a little bit about the back and forth this week that you followed. Yeah, it is. It, it's quite interesting. I mean, you know, as as you say that, you know, I, I think I think a lot of what he, a lot of his criticisms hold water. But but it's the context I think where you know kind of was where, where they start falling down, and and that context is is, is one that I, that I referred to earlier as well, which is the 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 role of private sector debt and 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 Western uh, eurobond and other forms of of, of private sector debt. Um, and the role of of, of private banks, um, you know, kind of in in the current debt crisis, and so you know, kind of, I, I think, you know, things of course looked very different a few years ago, ten years ago, pre-pandemic, and at that stage there was a lot of, you know, there there was interest rates were still in, you know, in a historically low period, um, and there was a lot of a lot of discussion in development circles about possible ways to to mobilize some of the private capital, you know, Western private capital into infrastructure investments in, in Africa, and that, you know, so that discussion took on a lot of forms. And you know, and in in part, for example, the the current kind of vogue for public-private partnerships, for you know, for road building and so on, uh, you know, kind of like fed into like it was was part of that discussion. But you know, I, I think one so so the kind of encouragement of of global south countries that particularly ones that are that are resource dependent at a moment in in the in the 2010s when when you know kind of when resource prices were up and interest rates were down, the the encouragement of them to to lend more on, on you know kind of on 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 these kind of, of to lend large amounts of this kind of this bond and other kind of private debt i think made a certain amount of sense at that stage that hasn't you know that that, that context has shifted a lot um since then and because of the pandemic and because of 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 you know the other issues we're facing but there's no move there to kind of to to adapt the kind of the, the way one is dealing with that debt um, now in 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 response to changed circumstances the way that there are all of these calls for China to 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 deal to to respond to changed circumstances and I completely support the call for China to to you know kind of to do to more proactively. Um, you know, kind of meet these countries halfway, and you know, kind of even if it means taking a certain amount of loss to, you know, to to, to help them move forward. In because China, if you know, kind of eventually profits from from kind of high levels of development in the global south. You know, kind of thanks to its engagement through the BRI and, and other and other mechanisms. But you know, so 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 I, I support that call, but at the same time. Simply again, simply pretending that Western private debt doesn't exist and that it doesn't make up the majority of a lot of these debt distressed countries' debt burdens—it's just not realistic. You know, kind of, it's just not taking so so so. It's it's not taking the 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 full the full situation into account. And you know, kind of, and and so it just it just kind of like raises all these questions about like how like like what's going on like you know kind of like why why are these officials so so kind of unwilling to even touch this issue and what are the kind of political calculus that that's, you know, that, that kind of underlies that Sanusha, so Kobus talks about the context and, and and I'd just like to get your take as to why do you think that African governments in particular are not putting more pressure on the Chinese for actually doing what Muhammadu Buhari wants into cancel debt rather than to restructure and delay the way that Brett Neiman was accusing the Chinese of doing. Why isn't there more public pressure from African stakeholders on the Chinese, do you think? And I think with, when it comes to China, there's been this kind of very, I wouldn't say different, but seeing China as the alternative to the West, uh, as the as the partner that you want to have 
where China is not imposing or, or in a sense, the perception of not imposing itself in terms of the relationship with African countries. And I think it's still kind of very nostalgic in that way, in the way that the relationship with China is perceived. It's, it's, it's like a conversation I had recently uh, with somebody and they were talking about the, the Russian-Ukraine conflict and they were talking about whether Africa, you know, taking a, a neutral position is the right position or whatever. And the perception was that Putin will not gain traction in Africa because he doesn't have that soft power uh, uh, trajectory. The West will still, or the EU, or the West will still remain dominant. And I think the pr- the challenge is that China is seen as that alternative. Unfortunately, what what is not coming through in the relationship or the or the kind of understanding of the evolving of the relationship with China is that China is moving very fast and rapidly maturing in its relationship with Africa. I think from the African side, the agencies there, there are one or two African governments who have utilized the relationship with Africa, uh, with China rather, in, in the context of saying, well, we will push on this question of uh, contracts. We will push on this question of not allowing to have this kind of open-ended relationship with China that just kind of, you know, uh, rubber stamps these uh, these 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 uh, economic relationship. Uh, one of them being the the the, the current uh, president of 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 Angola, uh, utilizing that space in terms of saying, I need to look at these of, of of these transactions and these contracts that we have with the Chinese companies. But I think they do it in a very parochial way. It is very much about how they want to utilize the space in terms of. How, are they leveraging the relationship with China to say, listen, we need to talk about this debt question. We need to talk about this fact that um, these, these contracts need to be reviewed in a particular way. I think what's happening in the context of, of some African countries, I wouldn't say all, I would say some, that they are utilizing it in terms of an election, election strategy, in terms of a governance strategy, but very parochially, whereas you need to do it across the board. You need to actually talk about what kind of engagement you have with, with China. You can't have an all open-ended Africa strategy towards China. You've got to think about the bilateral. You've got to think about that's where the bilateral between yourself and China is most critical because it's anchored. The relationship that Africa, China has with African countries is anchored in the bilateral. And that anchoring of the bilateral is critical whether you have any bilateral investment treaty with China, whether you have a um, an upgraded uh, comprehensive strategic partnership, like in the case of South Africa, but it has to be done on the basis to say we need to understand that level of negotiation, that level of engagement, and what it is that we are negotiating with China. On that count, I, I really kind of support the call that's coming from um, from the Beijing-based think tank Development Reimagined. Um, calling for a debtors club, you know, for 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 African lend African borrowers to to kind of band together to to share information in the first place around contracts, around you know, kind of our terms and and our debt restructuring processes now particularly, but also to to then kind of like use a kind of a collective bargaining base 
to to use kind of to, to use for example shared regional prosperity you know kind of as a way to to uh, to change kind of risk calculations for in in terms of individual members lending you know so so it's it's one of those things where you know kind of i think i think the the launch of the global development initiative and global security initiative actually provides a lot of kind of rhetorical space for these global south countries to use china's language in order to make china do things that it doesn't want to do you know in the sense of like oh you want to talk about the development development security nexus you want to talk about about indivisible economic security let's talk about that you know let's let's talk about like the 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 impact that that one such kind of like debt restructuring problem like in a country of zambia has on the entire static region and so the entire static regions should be involved you know kind of in in that in those kind of those kind of mechanisms but you know Sonisha, I, I don't know if you agree but like i i don't really see the africans kind of like like kind of moving in that direction soon no, I, I think I think let's just take SADC. I think SADC, you know, the potential for a regional economic community like SADC to be part of that leveraging of shared information, shared prosperity, the um, uh, the, the 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 shared level of engagement in terms of developing a a kind of internal dynamic around. Uh, how do you negotiate? What are the key issues, etc.? I mean, it, the potential is there, and unfortunately, um, it seems as if the 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 need to uptake, the need to actually implement, is not there. Um, countries are still looking at themselves in the SADC region as crafting and garnering the bilateral relationship with China. Um, and at the same time, they don't realize that the impact that this has at the regional level and the spillover regional snowballing effects it can have for infrastructure development, for the, the kind of engagement around dealing with how you want to actually be on the same page when it comes to debt restructuring, pushing the leverage, pushing the envelope with China in terms of the GDI and the GSI is an, actually an opportunity for Africa to leverage the, the, the space. But unfortunately, I think that there has to be a, a a, a serious commitment on the side of the African uh, uh, countries, the African leadership. I think civil society tends to be much more active and much more engaging. It wants the answers. You look at the Standard Gorge Railway uh, project, how that evolved and the kinds of questions that emerged out of that in terms of costing and what was going on. But at the same time, African leaders also need to realize that China is changing. And that you can't see China as you've always seen China. Uh, you need to now update your interpretation and perception of where things are with your relationship with China. So let's close out our discussion on climate. And although this doesn't relate directly to China, Africa, it does speak to a lot of the themes that we've been talking about for the past 50 minutes or so about African narratives and African agency and a seat at the table. And in a previous show... Uh, I, Copus, I think this was a couple of weeks ago when I said uh, COP 27 or 58 or whatever it is, is uh, is a waste of time. I did get some some nasty emails out of that one, as I expected. <laughs> yes. But I'm going to circle back and double down on this one, okay? Uh, and, and this this is a, some amazing, amazing sound and an interaction that happened earlier this week. Uh, at uh, be, between with the World Bank president David Malpass. Now David Malpass is in a whole heap of trouble. Do something fun here right now. Go and do a Google search for David Malpass, <laughs> and it's all bad news. Basically, everybody wants him fired after an absolutely just monumental 
you know, viral exchange he had this week with New York Times climate reporter David Gels. I think it's Gels. Uh, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his last name, but let me just set the stage here so you understand what you're going to hear. Gels and Malpass were on stage at a New York Times event with the IMF's managing director and also the finance minister from the Bahamas. Gels opened the forum asking Malpass to respond to a softball question, okay? And he just wanted to hear, hear what he had to say about former U.S. Vice President Al Gore's assertion that David Malpass is a, quote, climate denier. And then Gels asked him, and I'm quoting here, do you believe in the scientific consensus that man-made burning of fossil fuels is rapidly and dangerously warming the planet? Kobus, for a guy like David Malpass, that should just be a no-brainer yes, okay? Malpass totally evaded the question, and so Gels then asked him again. So that's where we're going to pick it up. First, you'll hear from Gels re-asking the question, and then you'll hear from David Malpass. Okay, do, let me just be as clear as I can. Do you accept the scientific consensus that the man-made burning of fossil fuels is rapidly and dangerously warming the planet? I, I, I don't know if everyone wants to comment on that. At what we are doing is having impactful I, I, projects that reduce will, greenhouse will you answer gas the question? emissions. We have a mission of a World Bank that's powerful. Will you answer the question? Is that... I, I, I don't even know. I'm not a scientist, and that is not a question so Al, Al Gore can put. I don't know why it stays on the stage. What we need to do is move forward with impactful projects. We're going to move on, but that was about as close to an answer as I believe we're going to get. Crazy, Kobus. Crazy. We are 2022, and this guy's saying he's not a scientist. And this is the head of the World Bank. But this is why I say the faith that people have in these institutions is completely misplaced. Okay? Completely misplaced. These guys are jokers. Okay? They're not serious. I was walking around my living room being like, the head of the World Bank, the head of the World Bank. You know, <laughs> my, my boyfriend was like, you might have to lie down. <laughs> it's just, it's, and Sunusha, I mean, again, what do you take from this? I mean, Africa is, is, is literally at the front edge of this in terms of the suffering and the impact of it. You're in a country right now that, you know, a couple of years ago was 45 days away from running out of water, that is suffering brutally from drought, from famine, from all of it. And then you hear this. What do you think? You know, the, the thing about this is that the World Bank, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't equate uh, the World Bank to, to what, it's pres or what the president has said now. I mean, it's almost ridiculous to think that you can't see the correlation between the two. But I think the problem is, again, uh, what you actually want to do with your funding. How do you want to de deal with climate mitigation, climate change challenges, adaptation, and of course the environmental sustainability questions that are becoming much more real in terms of the experience of climate change and climate stress. I mean, in Africa alone, if you think about the uh, El Nino effect in terms of the sub-Saharan African region, or even in the Southern African region, between drought and flooding and, 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 and possible uh, tsunamis that may be coming down the pike. So at the end of the day, I think it's just 
completely ridiculous to think about the fact that we have to have impact funding. Impact funding is about the environment. How are you going to deal with the adaptation challenges? And of course, the just transition is a very expensive transition. So at the end of the day, I think that this this, this kind of blinkered approach by institutions, uh, whether or not you're going to be funding ESG or not funding ESG. But if ESG is a key priority in the funding of sustainable development in terms of what the Chinese are talking about with the GDI and looking at uh, the sustainable development goals, which again are at risk of not being achieved, and even if they are going to be achieved in a very minimalist uh, uh, dimension. So I think at the end of the day, the challenge for the World Bank is to re-renovate its thinking, but more importantly, I think rescue itself from its president. Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, you know, the thing is, the thing is, like our thinking about climate mitigation and adaptation and the kind of funding is needed should already be completely revolutionized just by the fact of Pakistan alone. You know, like Pakistan was is like a third of Pakistan is underwater. You know, um, and you know, so so that fact alone kind of like gives you such a like much more kind of starkly clear kind of indication of what we're talking about when we're talking about climate change mitigation and adaptation. You know, like the kind of level of funding that's going to be needed to you know kind of to to rescue the future in some kind of way. Um, you know, so so to then in the you know kind of in the same month have the the head of the World Bank, the head of the World Bank, you know, kind of still kind of like re, like play playing the kind of I'm not a scientist card is quite something. You know, it's it's really quite something. <laughs> easy, Cobus, easy. <laughs> cool. Okay, so Cobus, you know, keep the blood pressure medication close by because uh, my next piece, and this is we're going to re- end our discussion here today. Uh, this just sent not only you, but millions of Africans to, you know, just mind-numbingly frustrated. So U.S. climate czar John Kerry was in Dakar, Senegal this week, and he sparked a complete uproar when he gave a speech which many felt was absolutely tone-deaf. And he said that all countries are effectively equal in the climate debate, okay? Everybody bears equal responsibility, that was his word, and that Africa must, A, move away from natural gas and fossil fuels, and B, is also partially responsible for the damage that was done to the climate. But others, despite what the science is saying, hold back, saying, pointing the finger elsewhere, you guys created it, you guys have to cure it. Well, guess what, folks? Mother Nature does not measure where the emissions come from. They don't have a label of one country or another on them. They are from all of the choices we make about how we move our vehicles, how we heat our homes, how we light our businesses. So here's the deal, Cobus. I get to poop all over the environment. I almost made this an unfamily-friendly program. I get to do anything I want. I mean, walk walk anywhere in the United States, and it's just like massive cars, massive plastic. I get to do anything I want. And then I get to come to Dakar, Senegal, and say, don't blame me, and you need to change. Kobus, fire up the blood pressure medication and tell us what you think. This, this, you know, it was risible. It's risible, like, like so, so condescending, you know, kind of, and, and, 
Yeah. Like, you know, the, the fact that it's not only the historical impact of, you know, kind of, of, of Western emissions, right, which is bad enough, but it's the fact that the Ukraine crisis... Rev- and Chinese and Indian, let's be fair here. And Indian and Chinese and Indian, but but Chinese and Indian emissions coming over a much shorter shorter period. Um, you know, kind of the, the bulk of the historical emissions lies with the West. Um, you know, kind of, and that, um, you know, it's not only those historical emissions, but it's the fact that the that what the Ukraine conflict you know revealed was that Europe and and the US are still so fundamentally dependent on hydrocarbons despite reams years of all of this rhetoric right kind of rhetoric where 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 global global where the global south's development choices are filtered through this idea that you know kind of of higher standards values you know kind of like better just a better way of doing something you know just that you know through this kind of idea that 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 euro america is somehow uh, you know, kind of the paragon of modernity, the paragon of development, and that that people should be following them, right? Like now, Europe can barely kind of heat their houses because they because they they use the historical they didn't use the historical window of low of low interest rates and and massive prosperity, and in part fueled by by kind of offshoring all of this dirty industries to China. They didn't use that chance to 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 change their own economies into something more sustainable. They are still in the same nineteenth century model. That they that that they got rich in, and now somehow they still able to preach to the to the global south. It's like how 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 is this possible? And let's not forget that the United States is literally the largest fossil fuel producer in the world, more than Saudi Arabia. Also, let's not forget that China, in their latest trade data from August that came out, imported huge amounts of coal from Russia and oil as well from Russia and that the Chinese are now burning vast amounts of coal to make up for the fact that their hydroelectric dams are not pumping anywhere near as much electricity as they need because of drought. So all of these countries talking about climate are just full of BS. Let's give you, Sanusha, the last word. Hopefully you're a little bit more Zen than Cobus is. And let's just kind of bring us all home again on on these issues of climate and and really just these questions of just blatant hypocrisy that Africans contribute three percent to total emissions. And here comes Kerry telling them that they have to change. We need to adapt seriously and significantly all around the world, and particularly in Africa. So yes, we need to mitigate, but in Africa and around the world, we need to adapt, adapt to this planet that is already moving towards the one point five. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, 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 part, the problem with it is that it's very patronizing when you're sitting in a continent that has been at the receiving end of colonialism, imperialism, poor economic structural adjustment programs, uh, debilitating of, the, of, of, of industry, always in terms of uh, not being able to integrate into the global economy. And now we got to deal with the responsibility of climate change, which I'm not saying is wrong. What I'm saying is that you've got to look at it in the context of how climate change is actually impacting on Africa based on the more global context of countries that have not necessarily done the right thing. So I think at the end of the day, uh, the challenge for the the the, the the heads of, of whether it's the World Bank, uh, the envoys that are being deployed to talk about 
uh, climate change and climate mitigation strategies, etc., is to actually be much more sobering in terms of responsibility. And you cannot assume that when you come to Africa that you can make these statements and think nobody's going to hear you, see you, or even push back against what you are saying. Because now with social media and the power of social media and the power of connectivity, everybody's going to raise questions about, you know, are you really an envoy for climate change or are you just here to say, well, take responsibility and move on, get over it because you also are part of the problem. Well, we are part of the problem, but part of the problem is that it's part of it is not of our own making. So I think the responsibility again comes back to the questions of the debt question. If you want to restructure debt, if you want to talk about the fact that you want to write off debt, well, write it off and tell us that this money is going to be used for climate mitigation, climate adaptation, etc. Yeah, this one... People were pissed about this. Yeah, it's it's funny, like you know, kind of like you like it's also this, you know, American diplomats love to talk about how much soft power they have in Africa, you know, kind of through all of this kind of years of years of kind of like cultural exchange and so on. But this was <laughs> this was a real real kind of a moment of like the roasting of soft power. Like he got roasted online. Like people who I know, like friends of mine who who never like kind of comment on any news, they particularly were mentioning. Did you hear what John Kerry said? <laughs> So it's it was really interesting. It was a real like low moment for for kind of US image in Africa. I think this week. Yeah, no, I completely agree, and I think it's also it's yeah it's also the point that that statement actually then changes the narrative about the US in Africa or the way the US perceives Africa. So you got Biden speaking at the UN General Assembly talking about a community of nations and whatever, whatever, and then of course you got Kerry talking about what he said. And it just contradicts them. I mean, I think the problem is now that that diminishing soft power is not just a diminishing soft power of US power, it's diminishing soft power of the West. Wow. Well, we covered a lot of ground in the past hour. I hope everybody's still with us. Sanusha, thank you so much for all of your insights across such a broad range of topics. Uh, If people want to follow what you're reading and writing and how to stay in touch with you, what's the best way for them to connect? Twitter. At Sanusha Naidu. Okay, we'll put a link to Sanusha's Twitter handle in the show notes. We'll put some links to some of these stories as well on our website so you can follow all of those. If you want to follow what we're doing all of the time, every day, all the analysis that Cobus and the team are doing, again, we've got nine editors now in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East covering this every single day. So all of the stories that we talked about today are available in our daily brief. If you want to subscribe to that, go to China Africa Project dot com slash subscribe it's very easy so sanusha is a subscriber so that's great you know thank you very much for your support we appreciate it and uh kobus and i will be back again next week with another episode of the china in africa podcast until then thank you so much for listening the discussion continues online tag us on twitter at china gs project and visit us at chinaglobalsouth.com if you speak french Check out our full coverage at projetafriquechine.com and Afrique on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. <laughs>